podcast with me Dr Amy Burbridge. I'm a consultant in acute and general medicine in the UK and today I am joined by... Hello my name is Ben Lovell, I'm a consultant in London in the UK in acute and general medicine also and I do a lot of medical education. Thank you so much for joining me again today Ben. Um, You've got a case for me so let's start. Let's start. So this is a case of a patient I saw when I was a registrar actually but it's something that something has stayed with me so hopefully Um, You and those who listen will get something out of it. And it's a story about when I was a medical registrar and I was asked to review a patient on the surgical ward. The surgeons rang me for a medical opinion. Um, And it was for hypertension, a persistently hypertensive patient. So that sounds easy peasy. Any acute and general medic can manage hypertension with their eyes closed, but it gets a bit more interesting than this. It actually was a 27-year-old woman. And she'd been admitted to the surgical ward with severe, but thus far, unexplained abdominal pain. They'd done a blood tests, they'd done CT scans, and they had not shown any pathology. But she was persistently in very, very severe abdominal pain. Um, and they called me because she'd been persistently running a blood pressure of around about 150 over 100 since she arrived and throughout all of her treatment. Um, and they wanted me to see, possibly diagnose hypertension and, and initiate treatment because this was higher than usual for a 27 year old. Uh, And her surgical story really was admitted, she was day three of admission with unexplained abdominal pain. She had occasional vomiting, but not massive vomiting and um, no diarrhea or severe constipation really. So it was unexplained. And the abdomen was profoundly tender, but not peritonitic on examination. So I went to review the patient. Um, she was clearly in pain despite having quite a lot of opiates Um, and looking at her notes it looks as though she'd had recurrent abdominal pain for the last year Um, and she but this was the first time she presented to A&E with it Um, and initially she presented she'd been CT'd in A&E and discharged and she came back later the same day in severe pain and that's how she ended up on a surgical ward having ongoing tests. She'd never been told that she had high blood pressure before this admission and she did have a painful abdomen but otherwise there was nothing really interesting to elicit. She had no medical history before coming in, she had no drug history before coming in. So what do you think of this lady with her blood pressure of 150 over 100? Okay so the first thing I want you to do is a pregnancy test. Mm-hmm. Um, just to make sure that she's not pregnant, because every woman's pregnant until proven otherwise. Um, okay, so if she's not pregnant, pregnancy test was negative. Yeah, done and negative. Okay, so that blood pressure doesn't necessarily worry me too much. I've seen a lot higher, but in a twenty-seven-year-old female, yes, it's of a concern, particularly with the background of abdominal pain. Is she hypertensive because she's in pain? That was my initial thought. I I thought, I'm not worried about this. Treat her pain and then see what happens. Uh, I think a lot of people, because she was occasionally going to like 180 over 110, then down maybe to 150 over 90, but averaging 150 over 100. Uh, You see systolic hypertension with pain a lot. At that point, I hadn't really seen diastolic elevation with pain, but it certainly made a lot of sense to me that she would have it. So I wasn't worried. Uh, People get very worried about inpatient readings of high blood pressure. Um, Oh my gosh, they're going to have an aneurysm or a stroke or something. And a lot of, I think the med red role is like, it's okay. Slowly, slowly, let's, you chip away at blood pressure. You don't, you know, completely deflate it in one go. And I said, maybe she just needs better pain control was my first instinct. Does that sound reasonable? 
I completely agree with you, Ben, that actually if we manage the pain, then the blood pressure should come down. And I assume that you manage the pain and the blood pressure didn't change. Yes. Also, as a side note, I'm really not a fan of starting antihypertensives and inpatients or even augmenting antihypertensive therapy in inpatients. Um, I know I have read a paper on this, but I wish I could remember the title of it. But it was saying that if you do intensify or start antihypertensive treatment in inpatients, they have worse outcomes in the long run. And I think the reasoning is it's a stressful time to be a patient. They go home into their home environment, their blood pressure drops 20 points, and then all of a sudden they've got iatrogenic syncope and drug-induced hypotension and they fall over and break hips, etc. So uh, I've always been a bit ugh, yucky about starting any kind of antihypertensive treatment on an inpatient anyway, just because I think, I think that it probably does the patient a disservice in the long run. Do you know, I completely echo that because one of my biggest bugbears that I've seen in same day emergency care over the last six months is an increasing number of people being referred for hypertension, managed accordingly. And I'm like, well, actually, are they hypertensive because they're in hospital? They've been waiting for four hours. And I'm, I never start antihypertensives in hospital unless it's a hypertensive urgency or emergency. And what I'll often say to the patient is, buy yourself a blood pressure monitor at home, take your blood pressure two to three times a day, different times of the day, keep a diary of it. Mm-hmm. And go and see your GP, you know, in two to three weeks. And actually, some occasionally they have come back and see me. I had a lady a few weeks ago who had actually come back to see me, who did have quite high blood pressure, it was only young, did a blood pressure for a week, came back, and actually it was completely normal. Yeah, you have to tell them only do it two or three times a day, though, because that home BP monitor is quite addictive. And sometimes they come back with a measurement every 50 pages of the stuff. And I think that actually induces hypertension. They sit and panic. So you have to be quite strict. Yeah, Yeah, I have seen that actually. Yeah, Yeah, well, that's a very good point. Just morning and evening is absolutely fine. Yeah, Yeah. very good point. Sit down. Yeah, and then do the blood pressure. So, yeah, my my gut feeling was for them, they had suboptimal pain control, really. Although I did look at the blood test and there was a couple of small abnormalities on there. The full blood count was normal, except for a very tiny white cell rise up to 14, the upper limit being about 11. Her CRP was 13.13, so in my book, ignorable. (laughs) And her using these uh, renal function was normal, but she had a hyponatremia of one, two, eight. The cutoff being one, three, five at the lowest end of normal. Her bone profile was normal and her LFTs they've done were normal, except for her ALT was slightly elevated at 61. I mean, that's not much at all. So really hyponatremia of one, two, eight, but I couldn't quite explain. She wasn't on any medications which would cause hyponatremia. And her fluid status to me was euvolemic. So I don't think, was she vomiting and had hypovolemic hyponatremia or, or it's not really overload dilution hyponatremia. So euvolemic hyponatremia in a young person, it's really, is it SIADH or is it psychogenic polydipsia and she's drinking 10 litres of fluid a day? But I like to be helpful. So I suggested the hyponatremia screen to, to the surgeons, which basically was let's get a urine, sodium and osmolality and then we'll, then we'll know. Um, and examining the patient, I did check for a goiter because, I, you know, just in case she's got thyroid, uh, overactive thyroid, which could be driving this. And there was no palpable goiter. In fact, her examination, apart from a tender but soft abdomen, was very normal. Uvolemic, as I said, no signs of failure, afebrile. Blood pressure was consistently elevated, about 150 over 100, sometimes higher, 
And her heart rate sat between 90 and 110, but the 110 coincided with really severe bouts of pain. Um, yes, but no goiter, as I say. So I suggested, why don't you, you do the, the TFTs, a simple hyponatremia screen, and then you can treat the pain. And then we can just watch and wait. She's not at risk of any uh, hypertensive urgency with those numbers. And I can't see any evidence of hyper. Uh, hypertensive urgency on examination looking at her blood test so we have a bit of wiggle room here with a breathing space and just to complete the narrative for you her past medical history contained nothing she um medication wise she started the oral contraceptive pill a few months ago uh, maybe a year ago but otherwise took no medications um and socially she was a non-smoker she was polish she'd come to the uk with her boyfriend for studies um had occasional alcohol but no recreational drugs and that was her really Anything I've missed out there or anything that you would be thinking about in that story or is it sort of cut and dried? Okay, I've got a couple of questions. So number one, you talked about the sodium. What was her potassium? 4.1. Okay, mm. so that's normal. Use an E, so uh, creatinine and urea? Urea was 3.1 and the creatinine was 62. So Both normal. The range, yeah. Okay, um, periods. So you said that she's on the oral contraceptive pill. Is it the combined or progesterone only? Combined. Okay, so she's having estrogen and progesterone. And was she having periods and were they regular? Yep, she had regular um, periods one week a month when she had her dummy week on the, uh, she had her week off the pill. Okay, so they weren't very heavy or abnormal like that or anything? No. Like that. no. Okay, no past medical history of no, no medications, you said no drugs, so no cocaine abuse? No, none of the above, no. Okay. Any family history of any weird and wonderful sort of like hypertensive cardiac conditions? No, and I asked specifically, um, but her family history was very, very, there was nothing, nothing in there at all. Hmm. So we have a 27-year-old female, fit and well, with severe bouts of abdominal pain, hypertensive... Bloods are pretty much normal. Mm -hmm. um, examination. Was she, um, did she have a high body mass index? No, she was slim. Okay. Uh, so actually, I think what I would do in this situation is, like you say, you took a history. Um, you've asked about the abdominal pain. Did she have any urinary symptoms? Urinary symptoms? Yes. No. No. Any rashes? No. Any rheumatological signs or symptoms? So any hair problems, joint problems? No, although in the spirit of true honesty, I did not go into that deeper dive with her on that review, but ultimately no. Okay, so the, the only thing I'm thinking of is, is this, this is really random. I mean, is it scleroderma? Does she have hypertension, secondary to scleroderma, um, systemic sclerosis can have abdominal complications? Um, I mean, that's, that's really stretching, isn't it? <laughs> well, she so... didn't have any, uh, I'll tell you that she didn't have any peripheral uh, scleroderma that I could see. There was no sort of typical scleroderma facies that you would see or anything that or any telangiectasia or signs of crest syndrome. So I didn't, I didn't pick up anything like that. Okay. I, at, th at that point, I literally wrote in the notes, my assessment, which was high blood pressure in the context of pain and hospitalization yeah. was my diagnosis. Um, also slightly deranged LFT with an ALT that was a little bit above normal range and hyponatremia in the context of uvolemia and I record and I said do the hyponatremia screen manage her pain and then call me back if there's any any ongoing concerns 
And they did. And in the next day, they, I was still the med reg on call for the wards and they ran back and said, look, her blood pressure is still 150, 160 or 100. We are no, we're wondering whether she, this could be functional because or she's got no surgical problem that we can identify. Um, her sodium is stuck at 128. Um, please, can you come and have a look again? We don't have any of the hyponatremia screen results back. And I think it was a case of, can you come and see again with a little bit of unwritten subtext of, look, can you take this patient over because we don't need to operate on her. And I think she's got a medical problem. So I went back to see her. Um, she was still struggling with pain, still struggling with her blood pressure. In the interim, the surgeons had asked for a gynae review in case she could have something like um, endometriosis um, that could explain it. But the gynae team had seen her. They said they felt that was really unlikely um, there was any gynae pathology there. And we finally got back the hyponatremia screen and the urine osmolality was um, well over 100 and the urine um, sodium was more than 20. And I'll tell you straight off the bat, so don't think, both in keeping with SIADH. At that point, I was sort of stuck. Uh, and I went back and spoke to my um, supervisor who um, was a consultant. And I said, I've got a patient I don't know what to do with. She's, she's hyper, unexplained hyponatremia, probably SIADH, but in the context of bad abdominal pain, which no one can explain, and persistent hypertension. And I got about that far, my consultant went, oh, um, she has porphyria. So I'm just going to show you something. I know you can't see it, but I've actually just wrote that down. <laughs> no, it's, no, it's me. I don't believe you. Like, I swear <laughs> to God, look, I love well, it. she has look. written it down, yes. Where yeah. is it? I have. Yeah. It's got a porphyria. A porphyria. <laughs> she wrote it down. Amy, well, you got there faster than me. And I was amazed. And I sort of went and looked it up. And oh, my goodness, she does. Acute intermittent porphyria, AIP. You went, oh, yeah, she's got it. And I said, how did you get there so quickly? And you went, I've seen this case before. And we always talk about pattern recognition on this podcast and um, have the different ways of getting to a diagnosis. And at that point in my career, the only way I could get a diagnosis was using the good old fashioned hypothetical um, re reasoning, which was sort of adding all the symptoms together and then trying to find the Venn diagram in my brain where they overlap and what the diagnosis is. And that's great when you're setting out. But if you've got a case in your back pocket that you can immediately match it to, Bingo, you sometimes get the diagnosis very quickly. And I found that profoundly exciting. But, oh, it's acute intermittent porphyria. Yeah, we'll accept her under the medics, but that's what it's going to be. Um, and that's what she ultimately had. And I, then I, I went and did some reading and my goodness, she was textbook. Shall I give you a quick overview? Yes, please, because I have to say, I've seen one case of porphyria in my career presented mm. with abdominal pain in a young female. Mm. Um, I mean, absolutely right, it's that using that bias isn't it of those patients that you've seen before but also that's got me into trouble sometimes with this hindsight bias oh I've seen this exact thing before it must be this and it isn't and I'm like oh god never mind <laughs> I thought sometimes I sounded intelligent leads me down the wrong path uh, Absolutely. I guess as long as you're then going to test your hypothesis by yes. saying let's test for this condition because I've seen it present like this before and keep an open mind to that not being the case but um yeah I was looking up so I went and looked up acute intermittent porphyria and basically I read a description of this patient which was fascinating um it's usually young women as you as you mentioned um usually young women in their 20s or 30s my patient was 27 it's often latent for many generations there's often no family history and it's an autosomal dominant condition and 90% of gene carriers actually have no attacks but because uh, of incomplete penetrance of the gene so that's why it was there was no family history worth noting and I read the description of a typical attack it said they often present with some psychiatric phenomenon she did not have this at all she was had none of the um, agitation or depression 
um, or hallucinations, which can sometimes be described with it. But otherwise, abdominal pain attacks, tick, tachycardia, tick, vomiting, tick, hyponatremia in 40% of sufferers during an attack, which presents like SIADH, tick, triggers include oral contraceptive pill, tick, um, mild ALT rise, tick, high blood pressure, tick, I was absolutely astonished that uh, she was, you know, uh, lighting up all of these different things. Um, but I couldn't get there because I didn't have any history of seeing the diagnosis before. Work. Maybe I would have eventually got there on my own if I really hit the books. But my gosh, we got there quicker. And so the test, of course, is looking um, for urine, uh, looking for uh, urine accumulation of the porphyrinogen and uh, genetic testing, ultimately. Um, and that was the case. And I, that stayed with me. And this is probably about... Pfft, uh, 10 years ago that I saw it but I always think of it now and I guess a young person or any person who comes in with severe abdominal pain we put them through the magic CT scanner of truth and work out what it is and I think sometimes if it doesn't show any pathology we often stop thinking um, or we say it'll settle down goodness knows how many people get labeled with IBS um, and in fact there is a whole host of very beautiful but rare medical conditions that can present with severe abdominal pain that we should mentally run through in our internal Rolodex and sort of rule in or rule out with some very, very simple tests. Yeah, I absolutely completely agree. It's when it's one of those conditions as well, when you see one of these really rare conditions, when you've seen it once, you recognise it the next time um, and the time again and the time after that, if it does happen. Um, you mentioned that they often present with psychiatric signs and symptoms. So what sort of psychiatric symptoms may they have? Depression, hallucinations, persecution, um, paranoia. And if you uh, you look, this is hypothesized that many, many famous people from history actually were AIP sufferers, like Vincent van Gogh, they say probably could have had it with a combination of neurosyphilis as well. But um, he had he ticked all of the all of these things off as well. But that's due to the psyche, and it's due to the accumulation of the, um, the porphyrinogen. If you um, meet someone who's got it, the treatment really, like all metabolic disorders I've noticed, the initial treatment is to give them glucose. They need lots of carbohydrates. So 10% uh, dextrose infusion in the short term really helps all their symptoms. Untreated recurrent attacks of AIP result in permanent damage to nerves, which is a irreversible um, peripheral neuropathy, for example, seizures, even death. And I, what I didn't know was that the only true curative treatment was a liver transplant, which uh, I, I wonder how many people actually go on to get. And you give IV heme as well. So I look, I look for it now a lot and I never found it since, but I think maybe one day I will. And now maybe you will and people yes. listen will at least consider it. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those things that when you've heard about it, it's like um, autoimmune encephalitis. That's another thing that when you've heard about it and you've seen it once, actually you think, actually I've probably had quite a few patients who've had that and I've actually missed it because it's so rare so such specific signs and symptoms but when you get that diagnosis it's obviously very good for the patient but also it's quite satisfying isn't it yeah and I have seen at least a couple autoimmune encephalitides in in uh, cases in, in my career and probably you're right there's a bit more of it out there than we all appreciate that there is but goodness me it's a difficult because it mimics everything doesn't it yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly that was a really interesting case I guess I mean I, I from as a trainee perspective that's a very challenging diagnosis to get because there's no specific test that you can do quickly to get there so you're going to have that 
the bit of a low sodium raised ALT, maybe slightly raised white cell count. And obviously the diagnostic test is not something we do every day. So do you have a system that if you've got somebody who's got these really weird signs and symptoms, for how you can think about casting that net really broad to really try and identify what is going on? I think for me, if someone comes in with, with symptoms with no explanation, and you yourself have reached the limit of your brain power, like you really are scratching your head. For me, I would advise there is so much power in getting a second pair of eyes on it, even as a consultant, medically unexplained symptoms. Sometimes talking to a colleague informally in your office can, like I did with the consultant, they can just throw up a wild card and go, oh, it must be this. Or have you considered testing for something? But even if you were maybe an outpatient, referring to a colleague for another opinion, um, is, is a really, really powerful thing to do if you get stuck. I'm not one for saying, let's just do every single test you can do at the first instance you meet a patient and see what the positive comes. I really think you've got to have a preclinical suspicion before you order a test and then know what you're going to do with the result. Um, but in terms of things like abdominal pain, which is a completely non-specific, what's another one? Fatigue, so non-specific and so common. Um, I think everyone has that... And their own personal way of working through it. And I think there are many guidelines out there for how to investigate non-specific fatigue, but then they stop, don't they? They say, or oh, oh, there's a box and it says, um, if all negative, explore other rarer causes. And, and that leaves you to go, goodness, what on earth were they, are they going to be? So that's a situation where I think getting a second brain in is absolutely vital. Um, and I don't know about you, but even as a consultant, asking a consultant colleague who is not necessarily more experienced than me or has more years under their belt in the NHS than me but just as a new fresh perspective on a clinical situation is really really useful and you could be any level of doctor any level of experience and use that as a tool yeah I I think you know decision making particularly around uncertainty should be a team sport and actually you know we shouldn't you know the best teams in the world you know you're not working alone are you you know even you know when you look at sports you know even tennis players who play singles they've still got this whole team around them who are supporting them and it's the same in medicine you know just because we're a consultant we shouldn't be making all of the decisions so I will often ask for help and say I have got a clue what's going on can I just have some help you know any suggestions any ideas any tests you, you think I've missed and also to echo your point I am very much anti, let's do 2 million tests and let's somewhere in that the diagnosis will be. And, you know, we live in a finite resource and I really think that we should, you know, respect that and not somebody comes in with abdominal pain, not then doing every single investigation under the sun, but we should do our T1 tests. Okay, our basic ones. Let's think what are our hypotheses. Let's confirm or refute that nothing's come out so let's go to our second level investigations and third level but you know we shouldn't be doing ct angiograms for, i don't think at the front door unless it's obviously clinically indicated you don't because respect it, that that's when you end up with all of these d-dimers and troponins yeah. that you didn't really want and now you now you've got to try and force it into a diagnosis and quite fit yeah and it's that that slightly elevated d-dimer referral to SDEC. Is a struggle because it will often come. I saw this patient last night. They came with chest pain. Their D-dimer is 0.58. The epilometer of normal is 0.5. Please do a CTPA. Mm. Well, actually, if you take a history and examine the patient, they have no signs or symptoms suggestive of APE. Do I then have to do that CTPA? Because the patient's expectations are they've come into hospital for that mm. test. 
And I find that really challenging sometimes to try and unpick that um, and identify what's the best course. Normally, I'll go back, retake the history, re-examine and explain to the patient, actually, I think it's highly unlikely that you've got a PE, so I'm not going to do this, the scan. Like you said, whenever we do a test, we should always be looking at the sensitivity and the specificity of the test to make sure we understand it. But also in the case of a D-dimer, we should be doing them when a patient has a high clinical probability of a VTE. But D-dimer is just a box that's ticked. And it's like, but they didn't have a clinical probability of that. And now what am I going to do with that D-dimer? And that can also be a challenge. It's one of my, I struggle with a D-dimer. What about you? You can, you can extrapolate it to, to CT scans that pick up incidentalomas, which then require this, a biopsy or, or you know, um, what's another one? Troponins are people who've, who had a syncopal attack and now you've got to do something with it, but they've also got renal failure and that could explain it. And I think there's, there's all sorts of things you pick up on tests, unless you really want the test, be prepared to pick up your incidental and unexpected findings that now you as the clinician have to make, make sense. And sometimes that can be really tricky. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just wanted to, I think we've talked about this before, but when I have a patient who I struggle to know what's going on, I use the vitamin D um, where I go work through and say I've got abdominal pain. So V's for vascular, are there any vascular causes, I infection, any infective causes, T's for trauma, A's for autoimmune, then we've got metabolic, then we've got aatrogenic, then we've got neoplastic, and then we've got drugs. And actually, I guess if we'd gone through that vitamin D and thought metabolic, to be honest, I probably wouldn't have even mentioned porphyry then. <laughs> even though it's a metabolic cause, it's yeah. somewhere so far down on the list. That's interesting because where I trained up in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, we had a vitamin CHO. Now, that stood for CHO was congenital, hypertrophic and obstructive. Vitamin D is better, I guess, because it's got drugs in it. And goodness me, with the drugs we give patients these days uh, cause all sorts of problems. And we're not going to be diagnosing people with congenital disorders uh, in, <laughs> in later life and adult medicine, despite what the PACES exam believes that we should be doing. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Although I do quite like congenital in there because it makes you think, but I guess it's, it may or may not be relevant in some cases. So moving on, what are your key takeaway points for today's case, Ben? Well, uh, I would say, first of all, is porphyria exists. Um, the, the prevalence is, is five in 10,000. I mean, it's, that's higher than some diseases we see more regularly, like Guillain-Barre syndrome. So it's out there. And I think it, these are people with unexplained recurrent bouts, abdominal pain. We sometimes think of familial Mediterranean fever, but I don't know how often we think, oh, recurrent serious um, porphyria attacks. So it's out there. It's easily testable. And um, that little cluster of features, maybe now I've given you this patient, you might remember it. So when you see that hypertensive, hyponatremic patient, young woman with on the pill with a recurrent bout of abdominal pain, that it might come further to the top of your, um, your consciousness. So I mean, that's the whole point of what we're doing here. So hopefully that, that has landed. And if I can steal another learning point, I'm going to steal yours. And I can't remember how you phrased it, but you said uh, managing uncertainty is a team sport. Is that what you said? Yeah, Absolutely. I'll have that one as well. Yeah, okay, <laughs> excellent. Yeah, fan fantastic. Thank you so much, Ben, for joining me today on this podcast. You have definitely reminded me that acute intermittent porphyria exists. I'll probably go to work tomorrow and diagnose about five people with it, um, with my, you know, my recency bias. I won't, I won't really, but, you know, I'll, I'll be there on the tip of my tongue. So thank you very much. Thank you to all of our listeners out there. 
And I hope you've enjoyed listening and taken away some of those fantastic learning points from Ben. And we'll be back soon. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to the Home of Medicine podcast, a podcast brought to you by the EFIM Academy in association with the European Federation of Internal Medicine, a leading organisation in internal medicine. Thanks for listening. Thank you.